Okay. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode on the Uncommon Paradigm podcast. My guest today is Dr. Andrew Stevenson. He is a senior lecturer at Manchester Metropolitan University and author of the popular book, The Psychology of Travel. This book aims to answer why we travel, if holidays are actually good for our health, what the social and psychological factors that drive us to migrate, and what makes travel some of the most meaningful moments in our lives. Travel is a key part of my life. Without it, I'd feel tied down and caged, but I've never thought about why. Why do I feel connected to life when I'm traveling? What parts of travel do I enjoy and what parts I don't? Well, this book answered so many questions that I didn't even know I had about travel. I learned, I learned that I enjoy getting lost somewhere new using just the basic navigational skills to find my way back, what type of traveler I am, and why 1920s French bourgeoisie men walked around the streets with a tortoise just so they could slow down and take it all in. Dr. Andrew Stevenson, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me on and nice to meet you. Likewise. So you've just uh, returned from Guatemala. What was the ambition for going there? Since 2016, I've had a research collaboration with some partners in Guatemala at one of the universities there. And uh, we've been doing some work with different groups of young people, mainly in educational psychology. Life out there is quite different for young people, can be quite challenging. And uh, we've been doing some research into um, something called resilience, which is um, quite a popular phrase in the English language, but in psychology, it means how we overcome risks and challenges and um, develop a sense of well-being in the face of those risks and challenges. So it's quite a catch-all phrase, really. But it's very relevant to young people in Guatemala because the young people we've been working with, they don't always have the opportunity to go to full school. Sometimes they have to work quite street connectors, as we call it. Oh, I see. And so resilience from what you're finding out, is that a character trait personality type or is it more uh, nurture? Well, it's a good question. It's something that we've been asking ourselves. And it's um, rather than seeing it as a kind of personality trait, what we try, what I think we've found is that it's a characteristic of a community. And so you might have, for example, some communities that are more resilient than others. And, and everybody knows that if all of us get into difficulties from time to time, whether it's to do with learning or whether it's to do with, you know, depression or stress or whatever, what we need is people around us, organizations, volunteers, who can help us out. And so we've been looking at um, how some voluntary organizations can create a bit of a resilient space for some of these young people. Oh, well, that does sound very interesting. So my take on resilience, the informal version that I've been brought up with, is that you go through hard times and by going through the hard times, you're learning to cope with it. You're learning to, well, be resilient through those moments. How could you train that otherwise? From what we've found and uh, sort of observed as well, is that in order to develop that sense of resilience in the face of hardship, um, there are certain what we call protective factors that can help us out with that. And those protective factors might include community organisations or family or peers or even, you know, professionals like psychologists in some cases. 
who can um, help you develop strategies for how to overcome risks. We In 2020, just before the lockdown, the pandemic, the last time we went to Guatemala, we did some interviews with some families who lost their homes and had to be displaced. It was quite heart-wrenching, really. And we were looking at um, how the community had helped them to respond and what kind of things had helped them to survive, not so much physically, but in terms of psychologically, really. To transition into the book, travel as a whole, um, as I alluded to in the introduction, I love it. I can't live without it. And I'm sure many people feel the same way. What is it about travel that makes us drawn to it? Is it the novelty? Is there other stuff? I know it's a big question. That one, maybe one of the first things to say is that travel is something that, that isn't universal. You and I maybe have quite a lot of experience of traveling. Uh, but um, in quite a lot of countries, of course, um, travel is not habitual. It's something that is cult culturally relative. I think there's only a minority of people in the United States who actually have passports. It, people travel for lots of different reasons. Sometimes people don't travel. <laughs> there are lots of people who don't travel. But for us, culturally, uh, it's quite common in, in, in Britain. And most of travel is for leisure. But lots of other travel uh, motivations include work and studying and so on. It's not just for pleasure. Sometimes people do it uh, reluctantly. They may, they may be, uh, have to travel because of the place they live has become unsafe. And so there are lots of different aspects of travel. But I, I guess that for travellers who travel for leisure, one of the great motivations is to have fun. And, and another motivation is for self-improvement. And, and psychologists have talked about um, um, various different um, motivations to travel. Hedonism, hedonistic travel is, is travel for fun, going to the beach um, and partying, that kind of thing. And the other word that psychologists have come up with is uh, eudaimonic travel which is travel for self-improvement if you take those two things um i guess most of the leisure travel we do falls into one of those two categories and there are lots of different aspects to each of those and i think that is in chapter five at least that's where i read it that was a uh... yeah and whether whether or not that happiness lasts very long when we get back so um you know we all know about jet lag and, and some of the short-term effects of travel but one of the things we would quite like to think is that if we've enjoyed ourselves and, and felt happy whilst traveling, some of that has a, an effect on our lives when we return. It might sound like a boring answer, but some of the research suggests that um, travel for self-improvement tends to have a longer lasting positive effect than um, travel for fun, because um, it can be a bit of a culture shock getting back into your work, I suppose. But I think, you know, if you think about when you're on holiday, for example, which is one of the popular reasons for traveling, I'm doing hedonistic things, like I might be bombing down the mountain on my bike or something like that, which is fantastic, fun. But other times I might be doing things like learning a language or learning about culture, visiting art galleries, something like that. So. I don't think there are categories of people so much who do those two, two different things. Yeah. And chapter two was about wayfinding. And I found that chapter to be specifically relevant to my life. I find in there you were talking about cognition, wayfinding, and how to avoid getting lost. Um, and you come through the three varieties of wayfinding, the commuter, exploratory, and quest. And I think, to my understanding, that also encompasses recreational, resolute and emergency type of traveling? Well, I mean, wayfinding is a necessary element to any type of travel because um, I think all of us have experienced 
feelings of disorientation. I guess one of the big risks of traveling uh, is getting lost, isn't it? And uh, some people thrive on getting lost and some people it's their worst fear. Uh, and so obviously we've sort of developed uh, strategies. You might call them cognitive strategies, problem solving strategies to um, reduce the anxiety associated with being lost. And that's what wayfinding is really. Uh, it's developing roots, that's um, R-O-U-T-E-S roots rather than R-O-O-T-S roots, but developing roots which enable us to grow more familiar with a new environment. Because, um, I mean, the concept of arrival anyway is fan it's fascinating. And, um, you know, it's perhaps one of the most emotional moments of, of any journey, isn't it, when you arrive somewhere for the first time. Uh, whether it's just because you're experiencing a new auditory landscape, because everyone's talking uh, in ways that you may not be used to. I, I went to, I visited New York once, and I've only been once, and uh, obviously the main, the main language there is English, but even even so, it was a kind of English I'd never heard before. You know, it was a, the accent which I'd heard on TV so often in films. And it's that sort of disorientation. And against that, we have to try to develop a map. I won't call it an internal map because I think it's not so, something internal, uh, like a cognitive map, but it's more a, um, a, fam a familiarity with uh, a place. Um, some people call it placemaking. I think that idea of um, how we do that is, is really important. And of course, we use all sorts of cues to help us with that. We use cues such as we look at what everybody else is doing to help us. We, do, we decide whether somewhere is safe, depending on whether other people are using that route. Sometimes use repetition in order to develop a familiar route that we feel happy with. And then after a while, we might slightly divert from it and try a, a different sort of tangent off a route. So there are all sorts of, sort of problem-solving techniques. Mm. And there's something with being disorientated and arriving, but at a place you've never been before. It's almost a novelty is tied into that arrival. It is, and, and um, you know, one of the things that's interested me a lot, and um, I didn't necessarily write about it so much in this book, but when I, for my PhD, I, I actually did a, a project about the senses and how the senses are involved in uh, wayfinding and um, and how this how we use the senses differently to negotiate the, the experience of arrival and, um, one of the groups of travelers who i worked with when i was doing that research project was um, international students because international students uh, are are obviously an interesting group of people because they face a challenge that all students face except on top of that they've also got to get used to a new living in a new place and uh, in manchester where i work hundreds of new arrivals appear every year, every September, and they all look uh, disillu uh, not disillusioned, uh, disoriented at the same time, you know. And uh, but what, what I was interested in when I was doing my, this project was um, finding out how different people, different students in this case, specialised in certain senses to help them negotiate uh, a new place. Uh, so, for example, I worked with a international student who was from Barcelona, and um, she arrived in Manchester with her guide dog. And they spent a year or 18 months developing a kind of auditory map of Manchester just through their repetitive walking each day and negotiating and navigating the city through sound and through touch. And I, I thought that was a really interesting. And so I, did, I worked with her as part of my PhD and I was lucky enough that 
um, to meet her, first of all, and for her to agree to do some of her favourite walks with me uh, and tell me all about um, how she had navigated these routes. And she told me some really, what I think are counterintuitive things. Like, for example, we were walking down a famous road in Manchester called Oxford Road. It's a road I often avoid because it's so noisy and the traffic's quite heavy. It's one of Europe's busiest bus routes. It's notorious for having too many buses, okay? And uh, but she told me, uh, she said, what I want to do here is walk really close to the road uh, because I use the traffic as a sort of navigating tool because it gives me, because I can hear this straight line, you know, as we walk down. Yeah, so that was interesting. So that was something that by navigating with sound, she was obviously navigating the city differently from the way I would. And then she took me into her favourite a bar and she told me that she loved this bar it's called big hands and uh, i've always thought it was really cluttered this bar and it's very difficult to um, move around inside but she said i always go in here because um, there's so much furniture that i can feel my way across the room so do you know what i mean so there are all these different um, sensory priorities that she had i'm interested in this part of wayfinding i find through my experience, it's a personality type of thing. I, when I go, I've been to Barcelona, I've been to a few places. And one of the things I do when I'm alone on a travel is I will look up the safe and unsafe areas and then avoid the unsafe ones if I'm by myself at stupid times and you know things like that. After reading a book, it became conscious that I enjoy getting lost and finding my way through just with the five senses. And I think you wrote about the soft wayfinding clues or cues where like you like you mentioned earlier about if there's more people walking this way it's probably safe yes and the classic one is the probably doesn't happen in reality very much but it's the sort of uh, uh, the smoking bonfire isn't it or the footprints you know these are sort of it's interesting because it's one of the ways that uh, other people have an effect on our wayfinding even though they're not actually present. So, you know, we can often, so litter, for example, is a good one. So we walk, might walk down the street and see lots of litter and we make uh, assumptions and, and um, calculations about what kind of place we think that is. And that sort of contrasts with the sort of more hard uh, social cues by actually looking at, oh, well, that place is quite crowded, so uh, it must be safe. Or if you don't like crowds, that, that's quite crowded, so I'll avoid it. The classic one is uh, restaurants, really, isn't it? And um, nobody really likes to go into a restaurant where there aren't any customers. And, and it's that thing about uh, using other people without asking them to inform our decisions. Because, I mean, one of the chapters in the book is about social, the social psychology of travel. And this, you just said that you like to travel alone. But, of course, um, it's quite hard, isn't it? isn't it, really, completely to travel alone? Because uh, although you have, may not have any family or friends with you, you're surrounded by people who are making decisions and influencing your your behavior. So traveling alone is um, has got a definite asterisk against it, I think, hasn't it? But um, we use other people to help us sometimes. It's funny because I get the anxiety everyone gets when they go into a restaurant or cafe and it's empty. And you're sat there with the dilemma thinking, am I lucky that I've entered this place and there's no one here? Or am I unlucky that no one's here because it's a bad quality place. That's right. I mean, so many of our decisions these days are influenced by uh, what we think other people have said. I mean, TripAdvisor is a good example as well, isn't it? And TripAdvisor is, uh, has become one of the great sort of uh, 21st century examples of social psychology, really. Yeah. That's pretty much what TripAdvisor does, isn't it? It, it, it has an enormous 
effect on our decisions about whether or not to stay in a hotel or eat in a restaurant and so on. So it's so important to get good reviews, isn't it? There's, there's been some um, psychologists have done some research on TripAdvisor and the effect of one, they call it the effect of one bad apple. So in other words, if it's got nine, five stars, but one review of one stars will have a really damaging effect. And everyone listening can relate to that. Everyone knows they've looked online for a takeaway or a new camping chair on Amazon, and they've come across these places with 30,000 five-star reviews, and then there's a handful, 1% of that total amount would be uh, mediocre. And um, you'd read that and think, hmm, maybe not. But then on the flip side, there was some research to suggest if a place has all five-star reviews, that it's also unlikely to be chosen because there might be false play at hand well the, the, there might be a suspicion of that yes i mean the thing about um, these types of issues is that our decisions about where to travel as tourists anyway has changed so much in the last sort of 10 years since um, you know since the uh, trip advisor and it's actually quite difficult to think back isn't it how how did we make our decisions we used to go to places called travel agents and and you know get gets there might be some advice you could get or you might know somebody who'd been to a particular place and it might be a personal recommendation but nowadays i think psychologically one of the things that's changed is that we're much more likely to base our decisions uh, about where to travel on the opinions of people we don't know whereas in the past there was much more of a, a tight-knit community of travelers i suppose and you might know somebody who once went to indonesia and said it was good so you know we might we might go on that kind of flimsy evidence like that and that, that plays into the whole movement of digital nomads social influencers youtubers vloggers that are walking around showing the best parts of the area and it gives a false promise i remember booking my holiday for mexico and costa rica last year most of the decisions we made were based off of social media posts. Absolutely, yeah. And um, I mean, I, personally, I don't use social media a lot. I'm, I'm well aware of perhaps when I'm traveling, that is perhaps one of the times when I would be influenced a bit more by what people have said. Speaking of digital nomads, for anyone who isn't sure what that means, I mean, I wasn't sure of a few couple of years ago, but I think I'm beginning to realize now what it means is that um, a digital nomad is a person who, as far as I know, is somebody who is able to work pretty much anywhere and is no longer tied to the workplace. Uh, and if you have a job which is 90% through your laptop, one of the things the pandemic has taught us is that uh, the idea of traveling into the office now, to some people, might be seen as having a less of a point than it used to have. I don't know what you think about that, whether, whether that conforms with your experience of work. Absolutely. Um, I work in construction now, so everything is on site. You can't be remote. I think we, we call it the office workers, which would be the, the higher up, the architects, the um, client management, those sort of people. They can maintain a remote or work at home lifestyle. In construction during the winter is a an abysmal place, I think. Um, I could think of nothing worse than getting up at 5 a.m. on a Monday morning when it's icy, cold, raining, to go out and stand in what would be a, a field to dig holes to build something. It's, um, it's a really, really tough way of making a living that I found myself in. And the current job I'm working on, we're building some laboratories here in Cambridge, in Annenbrooks. The building right next to it 
is all office buildings, um, all windows glazing. So as I'm walking up this construction skeleton to get to the roof where it's icy and bitter cold and windy, and I look over and I see people sat there on their desk with a cup of coffee in their hand, there's nothing more than I think of, oh, I need a remote working job. I want to become a digital nomad. <laughs> well, there seem to be, nowadays, we seem to have fallen into two categories. Obviously, those people who can't do their jobs um, without being present, you know, you know, the bus drivers and children's entertainers, you know, and so on. There's lots of them, uh, all, all the amazing people who work for the National Health Service, you know, nurses and so on. And then there are those others, and um, I'm largely one of those, I'm very lucky, is that um, the quality of my work doesn't really, uh, isn't really affected by whether I'm in the building or at home, unless, unless I'm teacher, of course. But when I was in uh, Guatemala last week, having written about digital, digital nomads a little bit in the book, uh, I think I actually met my the first people who are definitely categorised as digital nomads. I was staying in an apartment in Antigua, which is a lovely city. And um, I've stayed there before, but I'm, I've not stayed there since the pandemic. There were three individual people uh, staying, and they all had a different apartment, and they, they were there for a few weeks each. Uh, each morning they would get up and get their laptop out at nine o'clock and, and do their full day's work. And then in the evening they would sort of chill out. And then the weekends, they would go off to explore different parts of Guatemala, whether it be forest or... I, th I found this fascinating. They all told me... Uh, pretty much the same story that during the pandemic, their basically their office work went remote, and so there was no longer any need for them to um, be present at work because they were all from the United States. So one, one was from Singapore and two two were from the states, and basically they were just having the same working day as they would have been having if they'd been in New York or Singapore or wherever the third one was from, I, I can't remember. But they, they were they were really interesting. They were just, um, they were clearly traveling because they've been traveling all around Central America and staying in different um, amazing places, but still working at the same time. So it messes with our, messes with our sort of preconceptions about work, travel and pleasure. You're right. And it's going to take some learning because I don't think I could do that straight away if i was lucky enough to find a digital nomad job that you know would pay the bills and would allow me to travel like these people you met on the weekend i don't know if i would have the self-motivation to wake up at say 7 a.m and then have a meeting and do that sort of thing while you're in travel i think i've connected travel with hedonism yeah exactly and and that's interesting so there is that sort of association of um travel with pleasure and leisure isn't there i was very impressed with their um um timekeeping actually these people it's a small sample but it was a very interesting study because they were all they all really did seem to go i mean let's be honest they were all in conversation with people in their offices and i use the word office very loosely as you know all these people were traveling around somewhere but there was a sort of um, collective responsibility to to be there at, at I'll say 9am, but it's the equivalent of 9am, wherever the person was. Another chapter you speak about, travel anxieties. This is the sort of thing that not many people remember when they think back on a, a travel holiday, but it's one of the things that we gloss over when looking back. So an example would be going to a faraway destination that you went to three years ago, but you remember you were ill for two weeks of that. Um, those sort of things that we seem to 
have a foggy memory of and yet it's also real when we're there in the moment well i mean um we touched on the one one call anxiety maybe a moment of uncertainty early on which is the concept of arrival it's uh, what arrival does to you is it um, throws you out of sync doesn't it because we thrive on uh, knowing where we are and sort of in familiarity and arriving in a new place is both exciting and disorientating. Now, the sort of different flavors of anxiety, we talk about fear, anxiety, phobia and worry, and uh, they might seem to be all pretty much the same thing. But one of the things that a lot of people seem to have agreed with in, in psychology is that um, a phobia is probably not very helpful. Uh, a phobia of travel, uh, like there are obviously plenty of people who, do, who don't fly, not for environmental reasons, but literally because it's like going into a lift and you might have a phobia against that. So that's not especially helpful. But if you take something like worry, worry can actually be quite valuable. Um, so you might be worried about the journey that you're about to take. And that worry may prompt you to make sure that all the arrangements are in place. There's a sort of sliding scale of anxiety and some of it is um, valuable because it helps us get our act together and then some of it is actually so life affecting that it prevents us from certain experiences. Anxiety is often seen as quite a generalized feeling of uncertainty but we can't actually put our finger on what it is that we're worried about. Uh, whereas a specific fear of travel is often directed at something in particular, like flying, for example. Fear of flying is quite common, and it's very disproportionate with the, when you think about the amount of danger there is involved in flying. What perhaps what ought to be worried about is, is driving our cars a little bit more, and, and you know those are the things where people tend to get hurt a lot more. And could you link familiarity, as you said, um, could you link familiarity with anxiety and um, the not feeling comfortable in a certain situation for an example would be driving you do it every day to work to have the shops you feel more comfortable even though the statistics show you're more likely to crash in that car than an airplane complacency really isn't it i suppose right. yeah you know it's that idea that um and the other thing really about flying is we don't have any control basically over the experience and and um with i mean i'm I'm, what I'm saying right now is probably not something I've researched, but I'm thinking about uh, with driving, obviously, um, we do this when we're tired and we do this when we're stressed mm -hmm. and we do this in lots of a crowded environment, whereas really with, a, with, with flying, you are... It's perhaps one of the most, what's the word? I use the word mollycoddled, if that makes any sense, but it's the, it's the word which <laughs> describes you are looked after, aren't you? when you're flying. Uh, yeah. It's like being in a hotel, really. Uh, the flight crew, somebody's doing, else is doing the driving, somebody else is feeding you. Um, you're almost um, infantilized when you're flying. And it's funny, really, because one of the, the reasons why, it's been suggested that one of the reasons why people get scared of flying, it's not actually a fear of being involved in a crash. It's a fear of, um, a separation anxiety because what you're uh, thinking about is the fact that you're being taken away from a very familiar experience almost like a first day at school and you're being taken away from your cozy family home and you're in an unusual environment that you don't know especially if you're you know an infrequent flyer shall we say 
And that sort of separation anxiety can sometimes add to the sort of fear of flying that we don't have when we're on our daily commute. So we, so, so there's a, a small minority that have a phobia of flying. There would be a, a majority of people that are somewhere on a scale between they're uncomfortable flying and then they don't mind it at all. And I'm sure there's a, another minority group that absolutely love flying. For the people in the middle, for the majority of people who may enjoy or feel uncomfort on a flight, are there any psychological tips and tricks that a person who feels discomfort flying can use? Well, I think, uh, again, uh, I would say a lot of the responsibility for that is not so much on the individual, uh, but it's on the community. And again, it's on the actual airline and the travel companies to provide those cues and those um, comfort tricks to help you feel a little bit more at ease. For example, you may have issues with mobility or you may have issues with understanding the language. Um, it's important for the travel companies and the, the airlines to communicate clearly. And I'm thinking about COVID actually, is during COVID when flying started to be allowed again, I don't, I don't know if you flew during that sort of period where we were just about starting to fly again, but the airlines were very keen on social distancing, obviously, importantly, and mask wearing and so on. And one of the important things there psychologically is for the style of the messaging that the airlines use uh, to encourage people to conform, to wear the masks and keep their distance and to use sort of positive messaging, for example, talking to children, I suppose, isn't it? And we are a bit like children when we're traveling. The reason you've got to wear your mask is because uh, it's a good thing because it protects the people around you. So that's a good message and that would make us feel comfortable. And um, research suggests that a less effective way of doing this is to say things like, if you don't wear your mask, you will be ejected at the next airport. So these kind of negative messages are basically less valuable for making us feel more comfortable because it creates an atmosphere of uh, conflict amongst people so yeah it's a to go back to your question i would say that the important thing there is not for, for for people to try and sort it out themselves but for those who are looking after them to use appropriate messaging messaging and have measures in place that are useful for them right and the the carers on the flight the stewardesses the stewards they are essentially carers. They're there to look after you, care for you. They're surrogate parents, aren't they? Surrogate parents, basically. Yeah, right, right. And yet their job is just to look after someone, but it doesn't quite place emphasis on making them the most comfortable trip that they don't have any disworries and things like that. And it's it's obviously a difficult job for them as well because they, they, they're undergoing the same um, physical strains that we all are on. It's okay for travellers to look sort of weary and worn out but the the stewards and stewardesses they've they've got to have this uh, sort of front of stage uh, on stage appearance haven't they and, and demeanor my my partner is um studying to be a sociologist and she just two months ago told me the the name for what you described there and in typical fashion i am now showing that i forgot what she said However, I took the essence of it, which was that it's the front of house face. Everyone, even if you don't feel like it, you have to put up the face. I think I know what phrase you're looking for. And I, I, it's on the tip of my tongue as well. Going back to what we touched on earlier, hedonism 
and self-improvement, uh, hedonism and eudaimonic traveling. How do we do this with mindfulness and how is the flow state intertwined with that? Well, um, there's a movement in, in psychology called humanistic psychology. Again, this was something which kind of started to become very popular in the 1960s and 70s. And at the core of humanistic psychology is the concept of um, well-being. And it's a therapeutic approach to psychology. And two of the ideas that um, humanistic psychologists have talked about a lot are flow and mindfulness. Now, anyone who practices, um, I don't know, meditation or yoga will be familiar with the concept of mindfulness, which is this kind of um, idea of becoming super aware of your surroundings, listening to the birds singing, concentrating on your breathing and so on, but without making judgments about um, whether something is good or bad, just sort of being in the moment, I think is the popular way of putting that. So that's really important mindfulness when you're traveling because uh, I think there is an urge nowadays, especially in social media, um, with a social media kind of consciousness, is to say whether something's good or not. So mind mindfulness urges, urges us to experience the moment through the senses and through the body and through the breath without having to give it five stars or give it one star. So um, if you're on a fairly long journey, very easy just to sort of write the day off and say, oh, this, this is just a travel day, it's going to be really boring. Whereas a mindfulness, a mindful way of looking at that would be to say, well, hang on a minute, um, buses can be quite interesting. We've got lots of things to look at. There's some interesting people here. I might meet somebody uh, to talk to, and it's a, I'm, I'm traveling through a new landscape. So it's this idea of trying to experience the world without judgment and to be open through the senses to any experience. The thing about tourism is um, it tends to impose a hierarchy on experience and it sort of tells you that um, your whole day, for example, is building up to seeing the Mona Lisa or your whole day is building up to seeing this, this pyramid. Everything else is just a journey to it and that's not that important. So with, with mindfulness, the idea is that every part of the experience is quite likely to provide, potentially, is quite likely to be pleasurable. I mean, you must, I mean, you've traveled quite a lot and I'm sure some of the more interesting experiences that you've had have been on the way to things or in between places. Right. Yeah. I actually remember I went on a motorbike trip around Europe for 12 days, 10 different countries. One of them was Rome. I was looking forward to Rome so much. It's going to be the best place ever because of what social media has represented it to be. I get there and I see it and the expectations are so far different than reality. I think I must have just gone on an off day. Everyone was annoyed that you were there. The locals didn't want to know or help you. Um, there was rubbish everywhere and I don't want to downgrade Rome. I will be going back to try um, see the beauty in it, which I did see. You know, um, and so you're right, th those sort of... Uh... Uh, moments that we perhaps didn't expect. You, you mentioned their expectation and, and um, it, going back to this idea of whether travel makes us happy, one of, one of the things that's been found is that um, people's happiness or satisfaction on an excursion or something like that is really largely dependent on how good they expected it to be. 
Uh, and so perhaps as you just alluded to with Rome, those things that we really expect to be amazing uh, are very often the things that are most disappointing. Yeah, so one of the other um, uh, concepts of, of, from humanistic psychology, as well as mindfulness, is the concept of flow. And they're quite similar, mindfulness and flow, but flow is more focused on um, this idea of self-improvement through learning a new skill and getting totally absorbed in an activity that you're doing. And this can happen to people who are, for example, painters or people who are cook, cooking it can happen it doesn't have, it's not limited to travel uh, flow is something that um, is a state it's a state of mind i suppose and a state of body and it's very desirable and it's a great place to be it's just that sometimes when we're traveling we're able to enter these flow states and travel can be a, a good gateway to that and one of the sort of classic ones might be skiing down a mountain something like that uh, now, I'm not a big skier. I've only done it two or three times, but it is quite a, um, it's one of those activities you can completely get lost in, isn't it? Um, and so travel can be can be an experience which enables us to experience this flow state. Uh, but, you know, I, I think it's also important to point out that we can also do, you don't have to travel to do this. Right. And I remember reading in the book when you talk about mindfulness and flow state, your recommendation for anyone that wanted to remember their holiday or their types of travel was to have a balance between being mindfulness in the small moments and having an activity you're completely absorbed in. This would obviously be different to every person. I myself, a bit more athletic, I would probably need more of those flow moments to consider something more meaningful. So flow and mindfulness are very much what we call the, the sort of present orientated outlook. So in other words, you get lost in the present. And the other type of orientation that, that's been talked about is the future orientation. So there are some people who find it difficult to let go and find it difficult to enter that state of uh, sort of bliss where you're skiing down the mountain. And uh, I don't know how many people, how many listeners have checked their emails when they've been on holidays. A classic example of being future orientated. I can't lose myself in this holiday. I'm still thinking about what I've got to do when I get home. I guess that what you alluded to before is the idea of having a combination of these things, because it's actually a really good idea to have a future orientation when you're planning your holiday. So that you make sure that you uh, arrive at the airport on the right day or uh, get, get to the train station on time. Uh, but while you're there, it's also very important to allow yourself to, I guess, um, be in the moment and enjoy those flow states. This is one of the things I found very interesting about nomadism because obviously what they're doing, and, and this breaks up all our preconceptions, is that they are being very future orientated. They're thinking about their jobs and they're being very sensible and they're planning meetings for next week. And then maybe the day after they're disappearing up a mountain and you know exploring parts of Mexico and Costa Rica. I met somebody who just got back from Colombia and then the day after that, they were back on their nine to five. So that's a, a fascinating sort of experiment, really, isn't it? That we don't normally enter into because we're brought up, or I was brought up to be sensible while you're uh, at school or at work. And then you can be suddenly you're expected to be um, in the flow on holiday. And it's quite hard to adjust, isn't it? Yeah. 
And in the book, I remember somewhere there was almost a spectrum between someone that enjoys travel or their type of travel would be the all-inclusive. They don't actually connect with any locals. And then on the flip side, you have the belonging seeker, which I would consider myself when I go there. And if I'm around tourists, I don't feel I'm doing any justice to the local environment. I want to be there. I want to be hands in that area. I mean, this is so important. I'm going to read a little quote to you from uh, the novelist Paul Bowles, who's famous, well, he wrote The the Sheltering Sky, which is a fascinating novel about uh, travel. And he makes the distinction between travellers and tourists. And uh, he says, um, I, I quote, Whereas the tourist generally hurries back home at the end of a few weeks or months, the traveller belongs no more to one place than to the next, moving slowly over periods of years from one part of the earth to another. And and there's a difference, isn't there, between, as you've just said, a traveller is often somebody, a word we use to describe ourselves, whereas tourist is often a word we use to describe other people. And we often align ourselves with these two things. But within that um, category, within those two typologies, there are degrees of traveling, shall we say. And I think you mentioned this before. There are those who, at one extreme, you put yourself in this category as the belonging seeker, the one, the person who likes to immerse themselves in another culture and might um, go to a different culture and not just go to the tourist uh, sites. And at the other extreme, there are those who like to travel in a bubble, um, because maybe because they feel safer, and that might be the person who um, only ever travels in the company of a, a travel rep, only st- stays in a hotel which is peopled by other uh, tourists, and maybe the only people from the country they're visiting who they meet might be the cleaners and the people who work behind the bar, you know. And and that does have an effect on your attitude towards those people from, from different cultures. I'll give you an example from my experience in Guatemala, actually. So I've been to the same city four or five times now. And, and um, I used to go to um, a yoga class at, in, in this place in Antigua. Uh, but noticed all the people in the old class were from the United States and all the teachers were from the United States. Now, nothing against uh, that because it was a very good class, but I wasn't meeting anyone from Guatemala and it didn't have to be in Guatemala, okay? And now this time, I, found, I made an effort to go to a yoga class that was in a gym and it was in a, a gym in Antigua and the only people at the class were from Guatemala and the course was taught in Spanish. Now, that's a little example of the difference between... Uh, traveling in a bubble as I was before and actually trying to make a get, be involved in sort of ordinary things that local people would do which is slightly slightly different I pass judgment on people who come from the other side of the spectrum wrongly so I'm not condemned I'm not <laughs> saying this is the right thing you write in the book very neutrally about all types of travel and the, the experiences people have well one one thing I think that it does have an effect on um is and there's been some research on this is if you if the only people you let's say if you go to mexico right uh, and you're from uh, you're from britain and you go to mexico and the only mexicans you meet are the people who are cleaning your room or the people who are serving you drinks uh, it is it's been suggested that that your 
maybe not consciously, but your attitudes towards that um, group or that nationality might be affected because the only representatives of those of that place are people who are of a lower status than you or, or are serving you in some way. Whereas if you're more of an immersive traveller or a belonging seeker, uh, it's much, much more likely that you will go to Mexico and you'll socialise with Mexicans and maybe invited to, to the homes of Mexicans and share food with them. And so obviously you're meeting people on equal status. And that's the kind of thing that can have an effect on um, prejudice and uh, discrimination in, in attitude. So it is, it does have an effect. Um, but I, I guess in the book, I, it was important to write about it neutrally because I was trying to describe what people had found. Yeah, and we all can do more to be more mindful of other people's opinions. When I was reading the book, I then became more aware of it. And I thought, well, why was I passing judgment on someone that wanted an all-inclusive two-week holiday compared to me who I'd rather find meaning in sweating on a colectivo in Mexico, knowing I'm part of the locals. <laughs> I, I agree with you because I feel the same way. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, it, I'm just trying to think about how to, how to talk about this without being opinionated about it. But I think it's important just to understand that um, there are different ways of traveling. And um, maybe sometimes people, uh, travel in a bubble because of safety issues and I think with COVID and that, that's perhaps un understandable um, but it, yeah it's interesting I mean the, the, this whole thing about um, going to a place but trying to do things that ordinary people do in those places that when I went to Finland and the way that swimming is there it's it's a very sociable activity that's linked to going to the sauna and it's a place where people chat and it's just a quite a good way of discovering a place to do ordinary things there i think how do we all slow down and what is flaneur how uh, the flaneur so the um there's a chapter in the book about something called psychogeography and i said in the book that it was a, a diversion or a departure this is sometimes sometimes called the art of slow travel uh, it's not travel as we know it, really, but it's travel as in taking a slower look at um, the environment. And it might even be, in a perverse way, taking a slower look at your own local town or city. Uh, a flaneur coined in Paris, I think, in, in the 1950s by this group of um, literary group called the Psychogeographers, who at the time were getting a bee in their bonnet about the way that um, traffic was starting to dominate the city and big business was taking over Paris. And they felt that it uh, detracted from the sort of pedestrianised, um, more immediate experience of, of Paris. And so there was a movement towards walking the city. And a flaneur um, is a mythical character who basically walks the streets of Paris or London or anywhere else without any particular destination. And this goes back to this idea of travel not necessarily being about the place you're going to, but about observing without any particular itinerary the um, activity on the street. And um, the um, the first few manifestations of the flaneur and the people who wrote about the flaneur, like Walter Benjamin, who walked with turtles, I think you mentioned him earlier on. He, he became popular for popularizing the idea of walking with a turtle because it was uh, metaphorically 
bound to slow you down and help you take notice of what was going on around you. Um, the first flaneurs tended to be men who walked alone and uh, didn't necessarily, they observed without really socialising too much. But um, what I've tried to do in the book is talk a little bit more about the um, the, the way that the, the concept of the flaneurs or the, the, the flaneurs become much more of a, a way of life which um, a lot of um, female researchers have looked at and lots of more contemporary researchers have looked at ways in which walking tours have become very popular, haven't they, in, in, um, on, on the fringes of tourism. So there is a move towards uh, just slowing down and not just flying around and spending one day in this city and another day in Las Vegas and another day in um, you know, New York or whatever. Um, and, and actually, the the, um, the flaneur is something I thought a lot about in the lockdown, which is when I wrote this book, uh, because I started to discover lots of interesting locations in my city just through walking. And I found all great expanses of green space I didn't know we had. Um, and I think a lot of people had this experience in lockdown because we couldn't couldn't travel so much. And, and so we, we almost became tourists in our own city um and discovered the sort of the marvels of our uh, environment and even the wildlife in in the city and that kind of thing so yeah that's what the um that's what the slow travel movement is all about and it, it's kind of a an element of um it's a version of mindfulness i suppose yeah 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 i can i can see that and everyone that's watching if it's driving that i do when i listen to podcasts or people in a gym or walking for that matter you can just take a look around and see what's there. It's very playful. It's getting, it's trying to get you to think about your own city in a different way. Maybe through a lockdown, it all looked different. It'll look differently. Or maybe if you even bought a, a guidebook to your own city and tried to see it through the eye of a tourist, that's another kind of prank that a psychogeographer might do. So it's supposed to be sort of slightly tongue-in-cheek. But uh, Well, Andrew Stevenson, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you so much. It's been um, it's been a pleasure, a, a lovely meandering conversation, a bit like a kind of flaneur. A good metaphor to end it. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.